Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spirits Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Rachel Sapoy, a student at the University of Virginia School of Law. We will discuss her essay, Bostock's Inclusive Queer Frame, which will be published in the Virginia Law Review online. So welcome to the show, Rachel. Hi, Brian. It's nice to talk to you. Uh, I've been looking forward to it. I, as you know, I really enjoyed reading this essay, and I've seen it at various stages in its development. And congratulations on your forthcoming publication in the Law Review. Thank you. It's a pretty exciting thing to have happen to you when you're a student. And uh, you actually have a shout out in it somewhere, as you know. So Rachel, for listeners who might not be all that familiar with the Bostock case, or maybe kind of only know about the outcome and don't have a lot of familiarity with what actually happened, I wonder if you could kind of contextualize the case and sort of what led up to it and what took place in the case. Sure. So Bostock versus Clayton County is actually the consolidation of three different actions, all arising under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which prohibits, the short version is that it prohibits discrimination because of sex in the employment context. The question here is, what does because of sex actually mean? Because originally in the 70s and 80s, courts were quite firm about denying the protections of Title VII to plaintiffs who were LGBT or queer in whatever way, sometimes when they were fired, when they were dismissed or penalized because of their queerness, or sometimes just because they happened to be queer and filed this claim at the same time. There have been challenges to this, certainly. A couple have succeeded. Uh, cases with transgender plaintiffs started succeeding around the year 2000, although uh, none were brought under Title VII explicitly until a couple of years ago. What happened in these three particular cases is that you had two plaintiffs, Gerald Bostock and Donald Zarda, who were dismissed from work for being gay. That was stipulated to below. And one plaintiff, Amy Stevens, who uh, regrettably passed away earlier this year, uh, who was dismissed for coming out as transgender to her employer. She indicated that she was going to pursue gender transition, and she was just told not to come back. So all three of them sued under Title VII at the time the EEOC uh, under President Obama uh, interpreted because of sex in Title VII to include discrimination because of uh, sexual orientation and because of transgender identity. Amy Stevens, Amy Stevens won in the circuit. Donald Zarda won after uh, a fairly contentious en banc opinion. Gerald Bostock lost. All three of these cases came to the Supreme Court, etc., 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 yada, yada, yada. And we got a 6-3 decision holding that, yes, in fact, the words because of sex, analytically speaking, you know, under a, under a textualist construction, do in fact include discrimination because of queerness. Or I think actually a fairer reading of it is that when you discriminate against somebody because of their sexual orientation, 
like a necessary antecedent for that, or maybe a necessary component of that is discrimination because of that person's sex. So maybe you could talk a little bit by way of contextualizing why this was such a significant shift, sort of how circuit courts had tried to address this question and answer it prior to Bostock. I mean, as I understand it, there were a lot of different ways of framing the question, none of which were necessarily consistent with each other. Yes, there was a lot of there was a lot of disagreement. And there's this notion at certainly there's a notion in the Bostock dissents that the decisions, you know, recognizing these protections are a new development. In reality, I would say they're a bit they are somewhat older, but as I see it, the history of these claims proceeded in basically three phases. In the initial phase in the 70s and 80s, the queer plaintiffs' cases were dismissed kind of perfunctorily. Right? They were just thrown out like, of course, firing somebody for being gay doesn't mean isn't the same thing as firing them because they're a man. This couldn't possibly be what Congress had in mind. Congress could not possibly have wanted to protect, you know, queer people who were, you know, an extreme out group uh, in certain in certain spheres at the time. You have some actually pretty nasty rhetoric from from the courts, which makes clear that it doesn't really doesn't really have a lot of respect for these plaintiffs, and uh, protections were even denied to gender nonconforming, you know plaintiffs who otherwise, as, as far as we know, were cis and heterosexual, right? Like it was legal. Of course, it's legal to fire a man because he has long hair, even though you would never fire a woman if she had long hair. How could this possibly be a question? Um, the reason that this became a question was um, a 1989 uh, Supreme Court decision called Price Waterhouse versus Hopkins. And that decision is a bit complicated. The, there's a plurality holding about sufficiency of the evidence um, and about the proper standard of causation, but... The, there was a clear majority that agreed that firing somebody because of stereotypes about how they should act that are based in that person's sex, um, firing them for that violates Title VII, right? Uh, the, the plaintiff in that case, Anne Hopkins, she was denied a promotion at the accounting firm Price Waterhouse because she was considered to be too masculine. Like the the punchline there is that I somebody told her to take a class in charm school. You know, it wasn't appropriate that she cursed and smoked. But that would never have been objectionable at all if Anne Hopkins had been a man. The whole point of that is that she was a desire she would have been a desirable employee if not for stereotypes about how women ought to act. And the Supreme Court held that this, held that this violates Title VII, and for many years afterwards, plaintiffs were suing all over the place on Price Waterhouse uh, sex stereotyping theories. 
It's under those theories that we actually first start seeing success uh, initially for transgender plaintiffs, largely because you don't actually have to acknowledge somebody's transgender status in order to find for them under this theory. It's at the very least, it's a little bit compelling to say, well, it doesn't matter. All right, fine. It's a, you know, this transgender woman, uh, she was a feminine man and that's all there is to it. Um, and likewise, queer, uh, queer plaintiffs, gay and lesbian and bisexual plaintiffs also started to be able to state claims for discrimination because of sex stereotyping. The double bind that happened is that gay and lesbian plaintiffs, they could, they could recover if they were fired for being too feminine or too masculine but not for being gay or lesbian. So there's this uh, very odd line-drawing exercise that starts being set up where courts begin investigating essentially the plaintiff themselves to decide whether, for instance, a gay man was being discriminated against because he was perceived to be acting femininely or whether the gay man is trying to bootstrap in protections for sexual orientation. As you can imagine, this was... This created quite a mess. And uh, likewise, attempts to, to draw transgender people out of the law with, well, Congress couldn't have possibly meant them, started to fail as well. This is what leads, I believe, finally to the underlying cases in Bostock. So uh, the analysis did change. Uh, but it changed because the analysis became more more textual rather than less. The movement overall has been towards a recognition of the truly broad scope of but for, because of sex, causation. The Supreme Court has chosen to give those words a fairly broad reading to encompass claims that target gender nonconformity and things arising from gender nonconformity or sex stereotyping or what have you. Now that it has done that, to deny those protections to queer people involves the invocation of special pleading or the good old canon of congressional expectations, which we're supposed to, which we're supposed to disfavor, I believe, under a pure textualist reading, but um, suddenly comes alive again when it turns out that, uh, well, Congress couldn't have possibly meant the gays. I mean, one thing that was interesting to me in your telling of the evolution of this area of law was the way in which it seemed like there was an incentive to litigate cases on the grounds of the people in question being part of a discrete minority, whereas the framework that seems to have ultimately emerged is a lot more generalized. Is, is that a fair reading? I think that there's something there, right? Because uh, this is actually getting to why I call Bostock an, in an inclusive decision rather than an exclusive one. And I think the real point that I'm trying to make with this piece is to emphasize the truly not just 
textually inclusive, but the actually inclusive way in which discrimination because of uh, of sex operates. When we litigate discrimination cases in the states, a lot of the time we do what Jessica Clark calls protected class gatekeeping, right? We look to the person that that's been discriminated against to decide whether or not they merit protection as a member of a certain group. That's been tempting in the Title VII and also the Title VI and the Title IX context because that is the framework that we've built up largely for equal protection. But that's not actually how the Civil Rights Act works. It doesn't prohibit discrimination against certain people. It prohibits a particular reasoning process. So where the Supreme Court has eventually come down is that you have to look to the reasoning process of the person who did the discriminating, or or at least the person who harmed the plaintiff in a way that generated suit. And that reasoning process is is basically inclusive. And we do not have to actually litigate the boundary between gender nonconformity and sexual orientation and transgender status, right? Because these boundaries always have been blurry. I realize that it's comforting, I guess, to set up these very firm boundaries so that we know exactly who is part of the in-group and exactly who is part of the out-group. But the way that this has always been is that gender non-conforming people who are cis and heterosexual will be presumed to be gay, will be presumed to be sometimes transgender, will be othered in much the same way that queer and trans people are othered. The way in which they are maligned and the reasons for which they are maligned are, I think, basically overlapping, if that makes any sense. And if we say you can't discriminate against somebody because they're not doing their they're, they're not doing their sex right. I didn't get into this in the paper. I could have. It would have been fun. But there are at least a couple of gender theorists who talk about the notion of cultural genitals, uh, by which, uh, which really means, you know, the extent to which the way that we signal gender to one another is at least traditionally supposed to indicate like our reproductive capacity. So if you're doing that wrong, right, if you're not playing by the rules, if you don't look the way we expect somebody who we think has a certain reproductive capacity ought to look or act the way that they ought to act, if they're not conveying their place in the cis, heterosexual, whatever, they're doing it wrong. And if they're doing it wrong, they're punished. Or their very existence is held to be either illegal or an in the case of transgender people, an epistemic impossibility. Well, in light of that, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how gender theory conceptualizes some of these questions and how it can be that it would have ended up in a place that looks surprisingly similar to where the Supreme Court ended up in Postdoc. Yeah, this is 
certainly this is gender theory in the way that it was, you know, conceptualized and brought into the world in the 90s, but it's also significantly older than that in the sense that people asserting claims for queer and trans rights on this theory have been around for as long as gay rights has been around. Those claims are tracked back at least to the 60s to the 60s and 70s, and I probably could have found older things if I had looked. The particular argument that I'm describing isn't just a gender theory argument, but definitely the notion of sex, of our physical properties and reproductive capacity, being a thing that we do and enact in the world as we make our way through the world. And the notion that the way that we behave in public and present ourselves to others is an inextricable part of what makes us men and women or non-binary. That is essentially gender theory. And if we say, if we say that the way people are seen matters, that what we are trying to prohibit is a certain forbidden inference in the mind of the discriminator, then we're approaching, in a somewhat circuitous way, the notion of gender and sex, to the extent that those are distinguishable concepts at all, I think they're less distinguishable than we pretend they are. Gender and sex are a thing that we do for others, and it's a thing that we can do right, or it's a thing that we can do wrong. And Judith Butler, you know, draws an analogy between that and acting out a part for an audience. And it's the audience which responds with either approval or ridicule that teaches you how to do your sex correctly or not. Um, that's not quite what's happening here, but I think that the gender theorists are describing uh, by way of describing the nature of gender, they're describing the nature of gender-based discrimination. And they're describing it in a way that's strikingly similar to the analysis that the Supreme Court ends up here. That's not to say that, right, Justice Gorsuch has read Judith Butler. I don't know whether he has. I would guess that he did not consult her work in preparing this opinion, although you can never be sure. But I think that these radically different methods of philosophy and of reasoning manage to converge because they both pretty well approximate what it actually means to be discriminated against because you are a member of a gender outgroup, because you are a woman or because you are feminine or because you are homosexual, which is seen as inappropriately feminine in a man and inappropriately masculine in a woman, or because you're trans, in which case, if you're being discriminated against, particularly because you're trans, that's because people are seeing you do one performance with what they perceive to be the wrong body for that performance. They're different experiences. But the thing that's objectionable, I think, is fundamentally the same. So one of the things I found really interesting in the paper, or at least this is the my my best reading of it, was 
you kind of frame the Bostock outcome as bringing discrimination on the basis of sex kind of conceptually back into the fold of the other forms of discrimination with which it's paired in a way that like, it seems like previously they had been kind of conceptualized very differently. Yes, absolutely. I, I think that's true. Um, Unless you're willing to actually roll everything all the way back. I personally think that like it would have been possible to find the other way in Bostock, but the intellectually consistent way to do it would have had to go through overruling Price Waterhouse. I don't see any way in which you can believe that Title Seven prohibits a certain inference that forbids sex stereotyping without also capturing these other forms of discrimination. I think Justice Gorsuch is entirely right when he says that we shouldn't limit our textual reasoning because the statute appears to include groups which we normatively do not think should be included or think were not intended to be included or what have you. So I think it does make the Title VII jurisprudence more consistent. I also think that it makes the Title VII jurisprudence easier to understand. Bostock proposes this essentially a but-for test. You know you have discrimination because of sex if changing the employee's sex would have resulted in a different outcome. That's a logical test. It's it is possible to apply, and it actually includes all of these previous outcomes, right? Price Waterhouse never says if Anne Hopkins were a man, she would not have been fired, and that is why she was discriminated against because of sex. But that Bostock reasoning fully captures the result in that case. Well, so in some ways, the Bostock reasoning seems really straightforward and and simple. And yet it also seems kind of radical at the same time. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about like the reconciliation of those two and whether you think the reasoning in Bostock will have implications in other areas. I think that the reasoning seems radical because Title VII is a radical statute. I mean, this happens all the time with statutes which are intended in a really basic way to reconstitute the way that we live in society, right? Like an original public meaning or an original public expectations kind of interpretation doesn't really capture what these statutes were meant to do because these statutes were intended to alter the dominant culture. So of course we would expect them to have effects that were beyond you know, the foresight of the dominant culture at the time. I think that it's certainly possible that there could be interesting add-on effects, but that is a consequence of giving the words their full effect. The one thing which I would say is that the moral panic du jour seems to be, to, to a large extent, kind of landing on transgender and non-binary people. There is some notion that our existence is 
going to collapse the notion of sex into a nullity or something like that, or that the holding of Bostock requires that Title VII prohibits the erection of gender-segregated bathrooms, right? I don't think that's right, and I don't think that Bostock will have those radical effects, because that is pretty much never the relief that is most appropriate to the harm that's been done. There have been already a couple of bathroom cases that came out over the summer, uh, Grimm versus Gloucester County from the Fourth Circuit, and uh, Adams X. Rel. Casper versus uh, St. John's County, uh, both of which were resolved in favor of transgender boys who were not allowed to use uh, the men's restroom in their schools. What they were asking for was access. The school policy was un was violative of their rights as applied to them personally. And I think that the reason, at least the way that the jurisprudence seems to be moving is towards a more attenuated understanding of harm, right? Because nobody's denying, I think, that there is significant harm that is done to transgender people when they're excluded from facilities like this. That is harm in su- uh, that is done in such a way on the basis of sex as to fundamentally alter their experience of school in a way in which gender segregated bathrooms generally don't do that. And even if we wanted to come to a contrary conclusion, there are regulations which explicitly permit gender segregated bathrooms. I don't think that there's anything inconsistent to- in holding that Title VII prohibits gender policing but not the er- erection of gender, uh, you know, segregated spaces that are segregated by, you know, common practice rather than by enforcement. Well, in closing, Rachel, I thought this was a really fantastic first paper. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about where you think you're going to go next and what kinds of projects you're hoping to work on in the future. So... Thank you for asking, Brian, because we are not done here. Uh, this was really my first step in the direction of like actually formulating a coherent theory of anti-queer discrimination. Uh, I can say that I have borrowed quite a bit from the things that the wonderful Professor Deborah Hellman uh, has had to say at the University of Virginia School of Law, where she is you know, one of the country's leading experts on theories of uh, discrimination, law, and equal protection. And also, frankly, these issues are not going away. There's going to be a bathrooms case in the Supreme Court. Um, There's almost certainly going to be a case about transgender athletics, or really about transgender exclusion from school athletics um, that's going to work its way up sooner or later. That means that there's going to be interest in formulating uh, an understanding of what it means to discriminate on this basis and the way in which right discriminating because of transgender identity, while a wrong in its own right, also incorporates the wrong of discrimination because of sex. So I'm keeping my ears close to the ground. So these cases are going to be working their way up soon. The issues are not going away. And I hope that at some point I can develop out 
these ideas and hopefully shed a little bit of light on what this experience of discrimination is actually like, why centering the experience or the act of discrimination or the thought process of the discriminator makes a lot more sense than looking to the nature of the plaintiff himself. And generally why this language just works well to protect queer identity. I don't know how well this would work out, say, in the equal protection context, because there are really not words there with such clear and distinct meanings. And I could imagine there would be some carve-outs there, but a serious commitment to equality between the sexes is can it can be quite it can be quite fruitful it can be and it can be quite encouraging in a, in a sense this is really the gauntlet that was thrown down by second wave feminism right by people like Simone de Beauvoir by the women's liberation movement if we really want equality between the sexes we have to acknowledge the way that queerness factors into that equality and if we want to write queerness out of the law, we need to explain why sex equality matters in some contexts, but not in others. And that's not my burden. <laughs> that's the burden of the people who are trying to set up these carve-outs and exclusions rather than embracing this inclusive account. Well, that sounds great. Rachel, I can't wait to read more of your work and congratulations once again on this fantastic paper. Yep. This is up on SSRN right now, but it's going to be published uh, by the Virginia Law Review online in January as part of their annual symposium, which this year is about the 100th anniversary of the Equal Rights Amendment. <laughs> Like this, a local dance and a good night kiss, a marriage license, and then of course, lawyers' fees and a quick divorce. I know a man about 63, he lived alone and quite happily. A sweet young girl he chanced to adore, he won't live to be 64. Mother Nature, I don't want to criticize. Most of the time you are very wise, but you made a woman and you made a man. That is where the trouble began.
first came Adam, then I believe They took his rib and created thee To make the princess, they robbed the prince She's been robbing him ever since You take a girl and you take a boy Singly their life they'll enjoy You play Cupid and match the two And in a year they won't talk to you Mother Nature, I don't want to criticize Most of the time you are very wise But you made a woman and you made a man And that is where the trouble began is how it began. That's how it is today, and as far as I know, that's how it's going to continue. (laughs) ¶¶ 